Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Missouri Republicans had lots of candidates to choose from on Tuesday in a high-stakes Senate election, and they resoundedly selected Attorney General Eric Schmidt. This election can change the course of the country and save our republic. And I am going to Washington on a mission to protect freedom and opportunity for the next generation, for my kids, for your kids. Schmidt beat five major candidates, including controversial former Governor Eric Greitens. He's now on a collision course with Democrat Trudy Bush Valentine and independent candidate John Wood. On this episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Sarah Kellogg and Rachel Lipman break down last night's primary results and what they mean for November and beyond. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today, they are two veterans of the 2022 Missouri (laughs) primary election. Join Uh, the club. We've got jackets. uh, (laughs) An election we will never forget. Uh, Until the next one. (laughs) That that is uh, St. Louis Public Radio's. Rachel Littman. And Sarah Kellogg. All right. We have a lot to get through. None of us have slept very much. We're going to make at least 600 hyperbolic statements during this podcast. This will Let's, at least be fun. <laughs> there's the first one. Are we, are we tallying? Because there's the first one. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I'm not very – I don't have a very good record of being nuanced on the day after the election. But we do know that – and I think this is without hyperbole – that Attorney General Eric Schmidt decisively won a crowded race for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate – He won in basically every part of the state, the St. Louis area, northeast Missouri, southeast Missouri, did not win really the Kansas City area. That was more Vicki Hartzler territory. But it was a pretty resounding win. And this is what he had to say during his victory speech in Maryland Heights. We are entering the most consequential decade in American history since the Civil War. The Democrats aren't playing small ball. They're playing for keeps. They're two votes away, two votes away in the United States Senate from packing the Supreme Court, adding states to the union, federalizing our elections, instituting amnesty and open borders. Sarah, I'll start with you. Were you surprised by the margin of victory for Schmidt? Um, I would say that I'm not super surprised. You know, from talking to you a lot, Jason, and kind of seeing kind of the wind kind of shift towards Schmidt's direction, I think makes it. I was surprised it was called that early, I think. But as far as like kind of the margin, I wasn't super surprised. I was ready to call it by 8 p.m. after seeing the absentees in Buchanan County showing Schmidt was winning with 45 percent. What about you, Rachel? By the margin, yes. By the outcome, no. Yeah. And I think that the reason why it was not a surprise that this would happen 
involves polling. Now, anybody who's listened to this show knows that I don't like Missouri polling. I think it's generally pretty bad and has gotten a lot of things wrong. One thing that I could not ignore is that every single poll was showing that Schmidt was not only leading, but was leading beyond the margin of error. After a certain point, yes. If you look at real clear politics summary of this race, up until about the beginning of June, Greitens generally had a, a lead. It wasn't necessarily very strong, but he was up in the polls. A couple of them had Hartzler, one or two had Schmidt, but it was con- pretty consistently Greitens. It was the one towards the end. There was one where it was a tie, I think, or statistically a tie. And then after that is when you saw Schmidt begin to really pull away and those margins begin to widen. And I, I really think the result of this race is not very complicated to see. Greitens was winning this race up to a certain point. And then in July, this political action committee called the Show Me Values Pack starts carpet bombing the airwaves with these ads highlighting Sheena Greitens' accusations of abuse against her ex-husband. And James Harris, who is a political consultant, noticed before the election results came in that that was a pretty pivotal turning point in this race. There's been three weeks of you know, statewide advertisement talking about the accusations of child abuse um, against Eric Greitens. And if you look at not any one specific poll or IVR, but if you look at trends, it does appear since Sheena first made the accusation, that was Greitens' high water mark. He's not been above that. And then if you look at the last three weeks, he has been sliding. So the accusations that I was referring to, which, by the way, Eric Greitens denies, came out like in March. Well, I think I was still on FMLA leave. Yeah, it was quite a Monday. It was. (laughs) But it didn't really seem like the those accusations caused his polls to slip. It wasn't until the ads came out that we started seeing the precipitous decline. Well, I think part of it is how much people are online. I think the question is like, you know, is Twitter real life? Are these obviously these accusations? The news was everywhere. But it wasn't until you're right, kind of the constant hammering of it and people seeing it on their TVs all the time that it really took that toll. I mean, I remember back in 2018 with the Greitens trial and listening through jury selection. Obviously, it didn't end up seating a jury, but there were genuinely people who did not know what was going on with that case. And so it is possible that you have people who consume television where these ads are going to pop up, but not news from traditional sources that may not have been aware of those accusations until they were put on the airwaves in the sphere of media that they consume. And while this pack was, I think, pretty much ending Greitens' chances, Schmidt's packs were able to concentrate on Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler and just run lots and lots of negative ads against her. And Hartzler had financial resources and political action committees, too, but not nearly at the level of Schmidt. I, I think that's the reason he ended up winning. I think he ran a pretty straightforward Republican campaign, too. I mean, he took advantage of the political landscape when it came to COVID-19. You know, he sued against... COVID requirements. And you see mask- everybody. I, yeah, and, and, and for a lot of people that registered that he was advocating for people who did not like mask mandates for schools. And so I think he, you know, filing those suits, I did think kind of bolster his clout to those who would have supported him. And it's, I mean, it's not odd to me because I know that this is how politics works, but that just everything was negative, 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 negative. It's like you have a record to run on. Why not run on it? No, we're going to go negative. Yes, that's just politics. But I guess also in a 
20 plus candidate field where there's six legit five to six legitimate ones you've got to do something to you know clear the groundwork for yourself so i've made this point a few times both online sarah and i guess <laughs> now over the air is that it's really ironic that Greitens lost this way because the reason he became governor is that first of all he had a direct campaign committee that was raising a lot of money and then these third party groups just bombarded his opponents in the 2016 Republican gubernatorial primary with negative ads. And right before he left a rally in Chesterfield on Monday, I asked him if he was being beaten by his own strategy, and this is how he responded. Well, the facts are very clear. These are Mitch McConnell dollars. They're Mitch McConnell dollars coming in to support Eric Schmidt, who's a rhino. You've got Sam Fox, who's a big supporter of Liz Cheney, who's coming in to support Eric Schmidt. You've got Rex Sinkfeld, Mitch McConnell's biggest donor in Missouri. So I think that the race is exceptionally clear. I'm the MAGA candidate in this race. I'm running against a rhino. Now, I should note, he didn't I, he, I was gonna say, I was he did not answer say, my he question. He did not answer your and question. That, and that's fine. And the reason I'm playing this was, Eric Greitens was absolutely right. Like, he's been making this claim that Mitch McConnell is out to get him and that he's going to be against Mitch McConnell. And you might think that that's just standard campaign fare. But right after the results were released, Politico revealed that Mitch McConnell political organization donated millions of dollars to this PAC. So you can be right and still be... What's the word? I, I mean, I don't quite know what the word I'm looking for is here. It's not quite here. conspiratorial. I mean, it kind of is a little conspiratorial thinking like all of these things against you, but it is interesting to like see in the reveal that you were. But is not it also, incorrect. I mean, okay, so yes, it's a conspiracy in your own head, maybe, but also like there's logical reasons for doing it. Yes, they mm-hmm. may have been out to get you, but to cast it as like this, you know. Yeah, the bigger takeaway, though, is Greitens didn't have any financial resources to respond to any of these ads. His campaign directly never raised a lot of money. And even though he had like these political action committees that did have some resources, it wasn't nearly at the level to respond to these really damaging ads about his personal life. And you also have to wonder, too, I know the question has come up a lot, you know, where where does his income come from? How much of the resources that he has in some of these outside groups are going to fund legal troubles that he's having with his ex-wife or other that, that, that there are resources, but they can't be dedicated to a campaign because he has to spend them on other things. Because back when um, in 2018, when he was paying all those high powered lawyers and we're all like, where is this money coming from? He'd specifically set up a fund to raise money for his defense and it never raised any money. So we knew that there were networks out there funding him. But were those networks also then having to fund his continuing legal troubles. Uh, just to mention McConnell one more time, you say, you know, you mentioned he might have gotten exactly what he wanted, but did he really? Because Schmidt has come out against him for leadership. So, you know, was he kind of hoping he would get hearts out of the situation? I'm like, yes, he doesn't get Greitens, who would be very specifically anti, but it's not like he actually really won. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess he sees Schmidt as being more of like firebrands that he can deal with in, you know, like he's maybe sitting there looking like, oh, I know, I know not Eric Schmidt personally, but Eric Schmidt, the politician. And I know how to outmaneuver and outwork him as opposed to Greitens, who just doesn't flat out uh, until pay. until uh, 26 other Republicans say that they're not going to vote for Mitch McConnell. I don't find a pledge that he's not going to vote for him very meaningful. From a practical standpoint, you're giving voters a false hope that something's going to happen. But on that note, I want to shift to the Democratic side because 
while this insane Republican primary was going on, we had probably the most contentious Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate since 1994. It was rough. It was. And it was primarily between Lucas Kuntz and Trudy Bush Valentine, as well as Spencer Toter, who came in a distant third. Valentine ended up winning. And this is what uh, Valentine had to say at her victory party in St. Louis. To the many people in this state who did not vote for me and who have never voted for a Democrat, my entire campaign is about putting politics aside and putting people first. What did you make of Valentine prevailing over Coons? Money. Yeah. Uh, you know, Coons might have outraised pretty much everybody in the field, but at the end of the day, it really came down to those last two weeks of ads, which were just so... I, I live in Columbia. I don't have television, but when I stay here, a lot of the times I go to my parents and they have TV, and all I saw over and over again was the anti-Bush Valentine ad about her connection to the Vale Prophet Society and the anti-Lucas Coons ad about his former uh, policy positions that were more Republican. That's all I saw. And so I think, you know, that's what it came down to in the end was these two ads and whether or not kind of who saw what more often. Rachel, I'm going to be very honest here. I've talked with a lot of Democrats. The general consensus is this was a really nasty primary in a in a very underwhelming field. What, what, what would you and say? And potentially unnecessarily nasty, too. I mean, the prizes you get to go up and against a Republican in a, you know, 60-40 Republican state, possibly tilting even more heavily Republican. Like, do you really how hard do you want to fight for that kind of, you know, and, and didn't Bush Valentine get into the race relatively pretty late? The pretty literal late last as well. day she could have filed yeah. was when she announced. Yeah, and, and so, you know, who was working at her to get her into that race? I mean, there's a lot of, of she's now the nominee. You know, you could, I guess, look at it as a positive that Kuntz or Toder doesn't take a loss on their record to Schmidt. They, they can continue to work and build up a base elsewhere. But yeah, I think it was just people were under, I mean, Kuntz struck me as the Democratic equivalent to Eric Greitens, not only in appearance, like you just look at them and you're like, Okay, he bears a somewhat of a resemblance, but just in the the bombast and the military and the I'm going to fight for you and the yelling and it, that was just the first thing I thought was he's trying to be the democratic equivalent to Eric Greitens. But Lucas Kuntz did provide a pretty compelling personal story which not only talked about him growing up in relatively dire straits in Jefferson City, but also what he did in the military and how he crafted what I found to be a very concise populist message. And what's interesting is that even before Valentine was named the nominee, Schmidt seemed to be doing something very similar with his background in this clip. It was here that my dad, who started as a butcher, later worked seven days a week in the midnight shift at Anheuser-Busch. And not too far from here, I worked at Grant's farm while in college, giving tours and taking out the trash. And don't we need a little bit more of that in Washington right now? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't come from billions. I come from Bridgeton. Now, several people have pointed out that he went to DeSmet, mm -hmm. so... You know, they have they have they have kind of pushed back against that I mean, a little the bit. Schools do also have scholarships. You can right. go to, you know, upper level schools without necessarily paying full ride but to that school. I, I'm I mean, again, 
I'm not making a, a judgment call on Schmidt's politics, but that's a very effective way of contrasting himself with Trudy Bush Valentine, who I know has done a lot of great philanthropic work and seems and to be... she did have a career as, as, a, as a nurse. And it's as a not, nurse. She, she is not a I, trust fund baby but, in that sense But of the she word. is going to be perceived as the heir to Anheuser-Busch. Well, and it's wild to be like, he himself worked at Grant's Farm, which is by Anheuser-Busch, and he's and against dad Anheuser-Busch. at Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, Bush, and he's so. up against the Bush heiress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now, here's the thing. Schmidt does not seem to have the personal baggage of Eric Greitens, and he does not seem to have the message undisciplined of Todd Aiken. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for Democrats. And let, let's, okay, let's just not bury the lead. We've all seen Trudy Bush Valentine speak in videos. I've never spoken to her because her campaign did not make her available to me, either through the podcast or through interviews. Her communication skills are pretty rough. Yeah. And I'm I'm really questioning how she's going to be able to get through a campaign she, against a really good candidate in Eric Schmidt. won't be able to. Yeah. I mean, I think she's either going to have to do a crash course in how to campaign, how to be able to concisely explain. I, I, I mean, the West Wing had an entire subplot on 10 words before a debate. You know, she's going to have to learn how to do that or she's going to have to find some really darn good surrogates to go out there and carry her message for her. Because let's face it, she is not going to necessarily be able to relate despite probably getting the probably despite the endorsement of getting from Mayor Tashara Jones, she's not going to necessarily be able to connect to certain areas of St. Louis, Kansas City, North St. Louis County, et cetera. But it, 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 she's yeah. not going to be able to connect to more rural counties. Like, she's going to have to find surrogates to do that. And who are they going to be? Well, and even with some of those endorsements, Mayor Tashara Jones, though she endorsed it, she had to say, I endorse Trudy Bush Valentine, but I don't agree with her stance on uh, gender affirming health care for trans youth. So yeah, she's was, even had to distance herself that was what I was on say. some of the things. It's not just the way she's communicated, it's actually the the message. What and I, was that Channel Two, Channel Four? I don't remember what interview that was, where a, a question about t- education around trans issues morphed into a conversation about critical race theory, which she equated to erasing America's history. Look, I neither Schmidt nor Valentine came on politically speaking during the primary. I Schmidt, hope to his credit, has been on before. He has been on seven times. I hope they reconsider. I understand that coming on politically speaking is not the be all end all, since the two that won did not come on the podcast, but. I would hope that they would provide a chance to expound upon their views, because I think this will be a much more policy-oriented race, even though I'm sure there'll be some personal stuff mixed in. So here's a few other quick hits before we go to break. How do you think independent candidate John Wood factors into this contest? They won't now that Brightons is no longer the candidate. I agree. What do you think about the Trump-Eric's endorsement? Uh, meaning for the race. He just didn't want to endorse a loser and he was covering his bases. And it didn't really matter because it was a day before the election. Does Josh Hawley's political stock take a hit with Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler losing? Honestly, I think he's just happy that it's not Greitens. No, not in his head. And would Mark McCloskey had done better if the Yin Yang Twins and Vanilla Ice actually endorsed his campaign instead of just performing at the Greene County Fair while he was there? No comment. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this message. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio, Sarah Kellogg and Rachel Lippman. I want to move on to the first congressional district, which, as I've said three million times, I no longer belong in because the Missouri legislature put my house in the second congressional district, which uh, Trish Gunby will be facing off against Ann Wagner. We'll be talking more about that race. Um, Sarah, you were at Cori Bush's victory party, which I saw on Twitter was a very rousing victory party. Yes. Were you surprised by the enormous margin of victory over state Senator Steve Roberts? Yeah, I'm not surprised it was a pretty wide margin going in. I was pretty sure she was going to win re-election or not re-election, but win her primary. And which uh, is essentially re-election to be fair in the first Missouri district. More or less. She will probably be winning in November. Um, I can't say guarantee because, you know, we got to put a little space in between it but uh, but the Please fact do that it not was, speak that into existence <laughs> but it, the fact that it is that large that it was nearly 70 percent of the vote where her you know closest opponent Steve Roberts only got 27 percent more or less not even that's huge that is pretty much a legacy making victory now I have interviewed Cori Bush several times over the past three election cycles. And I'm sure she is sick of me continually asking her, are you going to win the black vote? Because she didn't win the black vote in 2018. She didn't win the black vote in 2020. And this is a majority African-American district. And my what I said is if she wins the black vote this time against Steve Roberts, she'll not only win, but she'll win by a large margin. This is what she had to say to me in a phone conversation about why she feels that she could connect African-American voters. I work with the mayor directly and my staff works with the mayor's team and we look at what St. Louis needs. And one of those things is we work to make sure that investment was going into North City. The mayor, um, the mayor, uh, I was there for the signing of the bill to make sure that 13, $37 million was going uh, to North City for small businesses uh, just um, maybe a, a little over a month ago. Um, so we are highlighting the issues that are happening in our communities, but then doing the work to address those head on. And that was really the ju- the gist of her argument, that she has done a lot of work with black voters by showcasing what she could bring back to them. And I, I think it was a pretty effective message when you look at the results. What do you think? I mean, it was incredibly effective. I mean, she talked about the, you know, over a billion that she's brought to her district. And she talked about a lot of the bills that she has passed or at least has and also has sponsored. I know in the last couple of weeks, she's filed several on abortion access, uh, protecting medication abortion. And that same day, she was arrested for protesting for abortion rights on, you know, at the Supreme Court. So I think she's done this excellent job of molding not only the policies that she's wanting to talk about, but also saying how she's bringing attention to those policies. It's It strikes me as being very Lacey Clay-ish of her, because that was how he ran in 2020, where he was like, I can bring all of these things. I have the skill and the ability to bring it to the district. And whether it's because she has willing partners now in Mayor Tashara Jones and a Democratic Congress where money is funneling through, but it just struck me that that was always Lacey Clay's claim is, you know, I'm bringing the money to my district and I brought the NGA to my district. I'm glad you mentioned Lacey Clay because when both me and me and Sarah talked with Congresswoman Bush, I noticed something very noticeable. Sorry, it, I'm tired. I can't think of another <laughs> adjective. When when Lacey Clay ran against Maria Chappelle Nadal in 2016 and I interviewed him, I don't think that Lacey Clay ever said Maria Chappelle Nadal's name. I don't think he ever attacked her. I don't think he said anything beyond, like, this is what I have done for the first district. And I noticed that even though we tried to get Cori Bush to attack Steve Roberts, I don't think she really 
I think she took the same posture because I think she just really wanted to emphasize what she's done and keep things positive, which to me is a sign of a confident winning campaign. And I will say, even though she may, she herself may not have mentioned Steve Roberts, her supporters certainly oh, did. Oh, yeah. yes. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but Roberts had, you know, several sexual assault allegations against him over the couple of years, and that was a contentious part of the campaign. You Including know, against a, a black woman who had the, the respect of a lot of the supporters. Well, and Cori Bush herself mentioned Cora Faith Walker in her acceptance speech. And, and, and she might not have said Robert's name, but she did say she would have been approached by several survivors of sexual assault, who had basically pleaded with her to not let him win. And I believe Bush herself is a sexual assault she survivor. She is. Now, do you think that Cori Bush won because she's a better candidate, or was it because Steve Roberts just failed to mount a very good campaign. Yes, both. I mean, I think she's an incredibly strong candidate. I think she, again, proved all the things that she is doing. And only in, you know, you get two years, you know, not even two years to kind of prove to yourself that first re-election cycle. You know, I, I actually talked to her dad last night about it. He said Errol that's, Bush. And she said that, he, that was tougher. That this election cycle was tougher than even 2020 because now you have a record that you have to defend. And I just, yeah, I just want to mention something because one of the arguments that Roberts was making against Bush was that she was not focused enough on legislating and too focused on protesting. We actually asked Cori Bush about that. This is how she responded. I've been told multiple times how what my predecessor, uh, one of my predecessors, uh, William Clay Sr., how he was this activist and he was, and, and people, people, uh, uh, revere him for his activism. So, and we, and we revere John Lewis and call him good trouble. We revere him. And but so why is it? So are we saying that all of those people were wrong? We're saying that John Lewis was wrong in the work that he did? Um, no, we cannot erase the rich legacy of those, not only John Lewis, but those others in Congress that are, that are activists that were there during the civil rights movement and those that are there today. So I, I did think that that was an unforced error on Robert's part, because I think he was really trying to run as a moderate centrist candidate, and neither Lacey Clay nor Bill Clay were centrists. I mean, Bill Clay at the time when he was in Congress was considered a radical. So I think that the idea that you can beat Cori Bush by moving to the center I just think that this shows that that doesn't work. I wonder if he thought with the way that the new district was drawn to strengthen his hand, if you play into there's a right way to do protest kind of thing, because you heard a lot of that in conversations post-Ferguson, post-Stockley, etc. Why are you protesting in this specific way? And, you know, she showed that you can do both, that you can introduce uh, substan substantial policy and then go out and protest in Washington, D.C. And you can also get results even not through policy. I mean, she uh, gained national attention by sleeping on the steps of Congress to basically protest the eviction moratorium ending, and she was able to extend it. Uh, you know, so even if it's not filing legislation, you still get results by bringing that attention. Do you think that this result means that people that don't like Cori Bush's policies. Because, you know, we've spent a lot of time praising her as a political figure. It needs to be made clear that there is criticism of her actual policies. She comes from, like, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders is not everybody's cup of tea. But do you think the fact that she won by such a large margin means that no one serious is going to challenge her for She's a while? She's here to stay. Yeah. I think it inoculates her from 
losing a challenge. I don't know that it doesn't stop people, especially maybe in the 24 or 26 cycle, from trying to come at her, especially if there's other dynamics at play in other races. Yeah, you know, maybe over the years, you're right, and like it might get tougher, but for the immediate future, I don't see, I mean, I think there'll be people who challenge her, but I don't think they're going to be very successful. So let's move down the ballot even more to St. Louis County, where Sam Page won over Jane Duker in the Democratic primary for St. Louis County Executive. And this is a little bit of what County Executive Page said after his resounding primary win. From my part, I can say that the battles among us Democrats are finished and the punches have been thrown and forgiven. And I'm happy to put aside differences so that we can work together through an economic recovery, leaving no one behind. So, Rachel, Sarah, can Sam Page keep the peace? I think in this is all Rachel. <laughs> I think that was a little bit of wishful thinking on his part. Why? Because I don't think he is any more liked by the people who dislike him because he won a resounding victory. Because one of the things that I pointed out is that with Rita Days beating Terry Wilson, and by the way, thank you to both of them for coming on the podcast. Yes, it was very and, and, candid and, conversations. And we, we really enjoyed having them. It means that the only way for Page to have a coalition uh, after 2023 is for Vicki England, the Democrat who's running in the third district to replace Councilman Tim Fitch, to be former Benton Mayor Dennis Hancock. And that district is kind of a swingy district. But if it's a Republican wave election, I think it's probably going to tilt Hancock and we could be in for a couple more years of gridlock. Well, and even if England is able to fight off a, Demo- a Republican wave election, are her policies going to line up with Sam Page, Lisa Clancy, Kelly Dunaway? Can she win that third district by being a candidate like Lisa Clancy and like Kelly Dunaway? And I think the answer to that is probably no. So on some issues, will she support Page in the same way that Shalonda Webb, Rita Days do? Uh, Sometimes Ernie Trakis will come on and support Sam Page. On some issues, yes. On others, she may vote against them. Will it be on occasionally more principled grounds than I think some of the opposition is, yes, but I don't think because of the nature of that district that even if she is elected one way or the other, you lock down a coalition. So there was a bigger surprise, though, in the county, and that was on the Republican side. Catherine Pinner, I think that's how we pronounce her name. That's what I'm going with, yes. (laughs) The state representative Shemed Dogan in the Republican primary. Look, Catherine Pinner did not set up a campaign fundraising committee, I don't think she actively campaigned for this, whereas Dogan raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, what happened here? I don't know. And without precinct data available at the time of taping this podcast, without looking to see who voted where and what, I don't know that we do know. Um, it, it is interesting to note that Shamed Dogan is black, Catherine Pinner is white. Race can often play a role in St. Louis politics. Did that play a role? Paul Berry I won two know. primaries. He's he did. Black. He did. Um, he was not necessarily up against stronger candidates, but you have to wonder too with. With with Representative Dogan, definitely one of the more moderate Republicans, that might help him out in the general. Did that really help him out in the primary? But did people know Pinner enough to say no, or did they just assume that because Dogan is a moderate? Because I, I, I looked a little bit, and there was some drop-off between Senate Republican primary and county executive Republican primary. Mm. Not that surprising. You know, maybe Dogan supporters assume he had it wrapped up, didn't bother to vote. They didn't know much about the race. But it, it's... You know, I don't know. 
we don't know what happened because I think everybody missed it. Now, look, it was going to be an uphill battle for a Republican to win St. Louis County. But a candidate that nobody knows who they are, who has raised zero dollars running up against somebody who will have lots of money. I think Paige just won re-election last night. I think so. I think so, too. And, I mean, it may be that it's a person who just votes straight Republican down the ballot. People may not vote for Paige, but I don't think there's enough who are going to cast the ballot for an unknown. So let's do quick hits on state legislative races. This is all you, Sarah. Before we wrap (laughs) up. I, I was following the state Senate primaries. So there's another big surprise that Senator Bill White of Joplin lost to Jill Carter Mm -hmm. in a Republican primary. So an incumbent senator lost yesterday. And Justin Brown, who is in the Rolla area, area, almost lost to Susie Pollack. And he's in within the margin of recount if she asks for it. So what do you think that means? Uh, I know know we're not experts in Joplin area politics, but that seems pretty significant. I mean, Bill White was definitely a part of the Republican leadership. He was kind of third in line. It was Schatz, it was Rowden, and then it was White. And so this kind of could have been as a rebuff of the Republican leadership that's happening right now in lieu of uh, conservative caucus members. And speaking of the conservative caucus, like it really seemed like a mixed result, but it did seem overall pretty good for them. So let's see who won. Mary Elizabeth Coleman in Jefferson County, Nick Schroer in St. Charles County, Ben Brown in Franklin County. I think those three are likely to be part of some conservative insurgency. Curtis Trent in the Springfield area, maybe kind of on the fence. And then you had like Rusty Black winning in Northeast Missouri, who is not probably going to be part of the conservative caucus. And then I think the biggest surprise of the night, Travis Fitzwater pulling it out in the wacky 10th district, which includes one of my favorite counties in Missouri, Pike County, over Mike Carter, who a lot of people thought was going to win because he was self-funding. It seems, though, that the results of these Senate elections means that it's going to be really frustrating in the Senate going forward. I think they're going to pick up about two more seats within the conservative caucus. You know, you have to remember, you know, Senator Onder, they did lose him. So it's kind of a net stay with Thrower winning. Um, but they they look, you know, it's it's a possibility to definitely pick up a couple of seats, which will make it a little more frustrating for Republican leadership. I don't think it's enough to, like, change any balances of, like, leadership. You know, for example, Senator Lincoln Huff was able to stay off a challenger, which means he's likely to be budget chair. So I think it's still more of moderate Republicans that are going to be in charge, but it's definitely going to be tougher. Do you think it will be on all issues that they are going to go conservative caucus in the way that the original six did, where it was just like, we're going to fight leadership at every move? Or is it going to be more selective in terms of they will go to the mat and filibuster in some circumstances? If they want to get things done, you would hope that they would be selective. But, but you that's don't the question. Know. But no, that's, that's the, the question, question is, do they want to get stuff done? It, or, I mean, I'm thinking about Nick Schroer and the way that he behaved in the House. Is he going to be interested in getting things done? Or is he just going to be interested in his own political um, uh, legacy. I mean, he he was the handler of the bill that had the trigger law, so I think he got something done. Like, he's pretty effective at getting that passed. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, when you, a lot of times, even the conservative caucus members, even if they disagreed on some things, they found ways to bond, like, to basically work with the Republican leadership. I mean, that's how the voter bill got passed, even, you know, so when it counts, they're ready to work with Republican leadership. I think it's going to be selective. We've seen members of the conservative caucus actually be bridges between the two, like Andrew Koenig of St. Louis County. He's a major bridge builder. And there's also some people that became increasingly disengaged, like Cindy O'Loughlin was part of the conservative caucus and then basically left them and is now like a 
beloved figure among Democrats, which I think is a, a story for another day. Uh, and so it, you may have situations like that happening depending on the issue. Yeah. I, you were going to just see what happens when, it, when, it, when the gavel sounds and we're ready to start. I do want to mention really quickly the House. Um, I know we talked a lot about, about the Senate, but uh, the House under the new redistricting map, the House is actually looking to probably have some Democratic gains. Um, for example, the map, the new map increased the number of majority black districts from 11 to 16. It added a new Hispanic Latino influence district. So I think the House Democrats are actually pretty excited about this map. And, and not that they're not going to still be in the super minority, but it might be less of a super minority. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will it drop them from super minority, though? Or can it get them back to minority where they can? I don't I don't know the districts well yeah. enough. And I know also super minority can give them some power. That's a super good question that I actually don't know the answer to. But I, and I do say with the redistricting, some of those Democratic districts did get a little bit more competitive, especially kind of some of the Kansas City area. But overall, I think Democrats are going to pick up some seats. You actually hit on a final point I want to ask both of you. Now, I don't want to ever say never. But it's looking like the Senate race is tilting toward the Republicans. And if national money ignores Missouri, I I think it's going to be a real uphill battle. Should Missouri Democrats focus on state legislative races, especially in the House, and especially making sure Tracy McCreary wins her Senate race in St. Louis County, as opposed to, like, throwing all their hopes and dreams into Trudy Bush Valentine winning the Senate seat. They have to build a bench. And I feel like the way to do that is to invest in state races and get people to run and then you build upon that. Yes, I agree. I think if they want to have a shot and Jason, this is, you know, the drum that you beat. They've got to start not only building a bench and having people who can advance up to statewide races or to statewide races so that we aren't having an underwhelming year, but also just narrow the margins in some of those rural counties. You know, there are voters out there who are looking for credible messaging from a different party, and it's not being offered to them. Rachel, Sarah, thank you for joining me and this very uh, energetic podcast, given that we are all losing steam. And, at and this that point. 600 sta- that statement about 600 hyperbolic statements was, in fact, hyperbolic. It was hyperbolic. <laughs> Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find all of our stories and primary coverage at stlpr.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Sarah? At Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And Rachel. Uh, R. Lipman, two P's, two L's. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.